0: Well, a couple of years ago, um, myself and my family went on a holiday down to Portsmouth. And when we were there, there is that great museum, that great Navy museum, the name of which has completely escaped me right now, but I certainly remember what I saw when I was there. There were a number of wonderful things to see. So, the uh, warrior, which is a fantastic ship, which I didn't know anything about. And I saw the Mary Rose as well. That was something I wanted to see. I remember when I was young, raising the Mary Rose, watching Blue Peter. But the thing that I wanted to see the most of all was the HMS victory. Now, in some ways, it was 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 the smallest of the ships, but you could get onto that ship. You could look around that ship. And the things that had happened on that ship really, in some ways, even define this country. It's, it's, it's very remarkable. The admiral at the time was a man called Admiral Nelson. And have you heard of Nelson's column? Of those who are young, maybe you've seen it in London. There's an enormous great column, and it's in Trafalgar Square. Well, what's that all about? Some of us probably know quite well what it's about, but maybe some of the younger ones don't know anything about that at all. Well, in olden times, the ships... They would line up one facing the other and they would shoot their cannons from one side and shoot back and forth and then eventually a ship would get a a bad hole and they they would sink or the sails would be ripped off and all kinds of things. But Nelson decided to do something completely different. Instead of facing the ships like this, he turned the victory and went straight at the French fleet and got all the other ships to go straight at them. Of course, they were sitting ducks. They couldn't shoot back. The cannons go to the side. So the French were shooting at them, but then when they finally met the French and they were inside the fleet, they could shoot at both sides at the same time. And they completely destroyed the French fleet. So much so that for years to come, the British ruled the waves. That's why we in the National Anthem, the about Britannia ruling the waves, there was, there was nobody else that could have met our standard. Now when we think of battles such as this, people such as Nelson, we sort of make him out as a hero, and in many ways he was, I don't, don't say he's not. What he did on that day, and he gave his life on that ship, there's a plaque that you can see on, on the top where this was where he was shot, and then his body was taken downstairs, and this was where he died. He gave his life over to win a victory on that day. But whose victory was it, ultimately? And that's the question that brings us back to what we just read in Judges chapter 6 and 7. Because in the passage that we read here, The victory was very obviously God's victory. We can look back to other battles such as Waterloo, and we might think, yes, that was Wellington who crushed Napoleon's great columns. But when it comes to Gideon's victory, it's really the Lord's victory. Well, a number of months have passed since we last looked at Gideon, Um, so I'll just remind you very quickly what we... What we looked at and we considered last time, it's good to have a recap. Sometimes when we watch TV, there's that recap that comes on at the beginning that you can skip. Well, you can't skip me. I'm going to tell you what we did last time. We saw a sermon for the subjugated. That was at the beginning of chapter 6. God's people had been following idols again. Back on the subject of idols this afternoon. They'd fallen into idol worship. And God had judged them. He'd sent these Midianites, He'd raised up the Midianites so that they could attack and they would uh, oppress the Israelite people. And it was like this for a number of years. And God sent a, a prophet to speak to the people and told them, "This is why I've done it. I've done it because you've been following and worshiping idols." We also saw a mandate for Meek for the Meek. This man, Gideon, was met by God all on his own. He was in the field. Uh, hiding, trying to tread some grain. And God said to Gideon, you are the one that I have chosen to, to raise up and to lead the people in victory against the Midianites. But he didn't want to do it. Why has you've chosen me? He was willing to do it. Ultimately, he certainly was. He was raised, and that was our third point. He was a leader for the lost. He would do. He was willing to lead the people. Gideon was a man of the right character. He had the right stuff. He was not looking to get a name for himself and be uh, some hero from history. That that wasn't what Gideon was after. He wanted to do what was right for God, and and his desire extended to what he did with the idols. He smashed down the altar to Baal. Well, that's what we saw last time time has passed, we don't know exactly how long, I expect maybe a few months, enough time for him to have amassed something of an army, where he is now ready, he thinks, to be able to go out and meet the Midianites, as he's been charged to do. And this is where we find uh, where we are in our passage today. So I've divided into, I was trying to think of very clever headings, but I've decided to leave it into four chapters. And each chapter has a a piece from what's in it. So there's a thing in each chapter, and I've named each one. So the first one is the fleece. So we'll see the fleece in chapter 6, verse 36 to 40. Well, what's a fleece? If you're of a certain age, you might think a fleece is a jacket that you might wear. That's not what we're thinking of. A fleece would have been what a sheep would have had if you had a sheep and you'd cut off all the wool from the sheep, you put it into a pile, and that's a fleece. That's what we're thinking of here when we're talking about a fleece. And Gideon speaks to God. After everything's ready and he's ready to go, he speaks to God and says this in verse 36, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, look, I'll put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there's dew on the fleece, but it's dry on the ground, then I know that you will save Israel by my hand. Now, sometimes with judges, there's a lot of gaps in the story. We're not exactly sure how much time has passed or or what exactly is going on in this. So we sometimes have to fill in the, the, the gaps a little bit. But it's interesting and it's clear that what Gideon says here, Because he says, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Some versions translate this, as you have promised. Gideon knew what God had said to him. He hadn't forgotten. Gideon had made a promise to him that he was going to lead the people against the Midianites. Would that not be enough for us? If God had spoken to you and said, this is your job and this is what will happen. Well, it's very clear and very direct. Gideon knew this. He'd not forgotten it. But he tests God and says, if you will do this, as you have said, look, I'll put this fleece down. So what's going on here? Is this, is this a sinful act? Are we to look at this and think, well, oh, you've really dropped the ball here, Gideon? This is. God had told you what he, what he was intending for you, and you've remembered it. You've even said it back to him. it have something of echoes of Eden where what did Satan say? Did God really say this? Is this what's happening? Is this what we find with Gideon here? I think we can probably allow him a little bit more slack than that. Time has passed. and Now he is ready to do the thing that God has asked him to do. But Yet he knows his own heart and he knows his own self this was you or I and we were being honest and we had integrity we might say "Well, in the the last weeks and months you know the things I've thought, you know the things I've done I'm conscious of my own sin, I'm conscious of my own unworthiness do you still want me to do this? In so far as I read it this this is how it seems to me that Gideon is a humble enough man before God to accept that There is something wrong in his own heart, and that he really wants God to reconfirm to him his promise. Prove to me that you are still with me, he asks. And in the morning he wakes up and says, and when he goes out, what does he do? He picks up the fleece, and how much water is in it? There's loads he can wring out and fill a whole bowl full of water, and yet the ground. Is dry. Now, was this a public thing that he asked God to do? Were the whole army hearing him do this? I don't think so. It seems much more like it was a private thing that he'd asked. He had these concerns in his own heart, in his own head. And no doubt, maybe in the morning, he hadn't told anybody why he was going to the threshing floor. There wasn't much grain around in those days, so what would be the need for going to the threshing floor? There's nothing there. But even after this, even after this miracle was performed, and it was a miracle. He asked God again. Then verse 39, then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let now the ground be dry only on the but on all the ground, let there be Jews. So this time he wanted it to be the opposite way around. He wanted the fleece to be dry and the ground wet. And we might think, well, is that much of a miracle? But fleeces would have soaked up that water. If there was water on the ground, it would have soaked it up. How it could have just been laying on the ground all night and not be wet if the ground is wet was an impossibility. And once more, it was answered. We can learn a lot from this passage. As a few things that I want to just very quickly mention. that We learn about God. We learn that God has, has that supernatural ability to, uh, to arrange the world around us. That he hears prayers. But also that he has patience with Gideon. He has great patience with him as he, as all of this was happening. He could have turned around and said, have I not told you? But no, he doesn't. He listens to Gideon and he shows him the sign that he's asked for. But maybe maybe more importantly, it teaches us a bit about how we should relate to God. If Gideon has fears, what does he do with them? Does he bottle them up? Is that the manly thing to do? Just bottle them up? Or does he take them to God? You know, sometimes there may be fears in our own hearts that we don't feel like we can talk to anybody about. They might be ashamed if they were to hear these things about, that they knew about us. But we can go to God. Every one of us can go to God and bring our fears to him. And that's what Gideon did. And that was the right thing to do. It shows us that our relationship with God is an intimate relationship. It's an intimate relationship. We're not sort of unnamed subjects. You know, if if some royalty came in now, he wouldn't have a clue who I am or she. He wouldn't know who I am and probably most of us, they wouldn't know. But that's not like God. God knows every one of us, even better than we know ourselves. Does it give us a temptation to think, well, maybe I'll test God in this way, is that the right thing to do? Is it good? Is it right for me to say, well, if I put a fleece out myself or something, we don't know. I don't think any of us have got threshing floors, but is that a good way to test God? No, I don't think it is. I think there's good cause for us to say that this is not right because what do we have that Gideon did not have? Well, we have his word. We have his whole word. We can look at this and go, well, the bits before Gideon Not very much. And we've got all this. But did Gideon even have the whole of that was before him? Books weren't widely available in those days. He would have had to go to the temple to hear the word of God being read. He wouldn't have had anything like the level of access to God's word that we have. And we can see God's word in its entirety. We can see the person of Jesus Christ as he's been revealed to us. None of this was available to Gideon. We don't need signs in that way. The New Testament speaks so clearly to us about this. If you just turn quickly to 2 Timothy 2. I don't think I have put a marker in it, but I think I can probably get there very quickly. Yes, 2 Timothy 2. Verse 11. When we read God's word, it's, the whole of his word, of course, is so important to us, but the New Testament in particular should be of a great uh, source of hope for us. What does uh, Paul say here in verse 11? This is a faithful saying, and what he's talking about is a relationship between Christians and people, maybe non-Christians too, but relationship between us and God. And he says this, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure We shall also reign with him. He's saying if we walk closely with God, then he will remain close to us. If we deny him, he will deny us. And to deny God is a very serious sin indeed. But it says this, and this verse almost knocked me off my chair the first time I read it. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. We might have moments where our faith is weak and faltering. But if it is genuine and real faith, he will remain faithful to us. Isn't that a wonderful comfort for us? So in Gideon's maybe rocky assurance, he was comforted by this. I also think there's maybe something that's important to be said about fact that he meets him early in the morning. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, so it'd be worth thinking about. But he gets up early in the morning before the distractions of the day have affected him. And he goes and meets with God on his own. Now, I know that that's a struggle for, for myself and for many of us, especially those with children and maybe health conditions and things like that. But what a blessing it is. I'm sure we can all know it. On those days where we've got up early, where there's no distractions and we've been praying with God when we've been meeting with him and reading his word are they not let's be honest with ourselves our best days days where we felt most comfort with him so second chapter we see the army we see an army verse 1 through 8 of chapter 7 Gideon's been emboldened he's been encouraged by this sign that God has shown him and so he sets off To do what he's been asked to do. He sets off with his army. A call has gone out to the tribes around. Not all of the tribes of Israel. We'll see that more in chapter 8. But a call has gone out and many people have come to him. And he's got now his army. 32,000 men. Well, an army's maybe only as good as what the army's facing. So, is that a good sized army? Well, we'll have to compare it to the Midianites. We don't know how many the Midianites had in their army. If you look at verse 12, just jump to that for a moment. The Midianites and the Malachites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valleys as numerous as locusts. The camels were without number as the sand of the seashore in multitude. <coughs> we don't know how many they had, but it was an awfully big army. It might even have still outnumbered them by quite a long way. regardless of that, God speaks in verse 2, and he says this, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me. And very quickly we get to the heart of the matter. What's at stake in this battle is the victory in the balance Do we know who's going to win? Who's got the the superior firepower? That's not what's at stake here. What's at stake is what God says there. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me. The victory is a done deal, it's going to happen. That's what God is saying to Gideon. In a sense, you don't even need to worry about the fact that there's going to be a victory. I will be victorious. What's at stake is my name. The glory that is due to me, God says. How will this be remembered in years to come? Will it be remembered as a battle that Gideon won with his superior strategy? No, it should be remembered as a battle that God has won, that God has led. So, Gideon speaks to the people and says... If you're afraid today, if this battle seems like it's too much for you, you can go home. How many army rulers would have said that? Can you imagine Caesar turning around and saying to his troops, Well, if you're a bit scared today, you can go home. This was an unusual thing to say. And two-thirds of them leave. 22,000 go. The numbers of 32,000 has now decreased to 10,000. God says, that's still too many. I'm going to sift them even more. And he gets everybody to go around this uh, water, whether it was a river or a lake. I don't know. But they were all to drink from this lake. And only the people who cupped the water up, without knocking their microphones, who cupped the water up to their mouth and drank, they were the ones who were going to serve God. So out of 10,000 people, only 300 of them drunk the water in this way. So their army of 32,000 men is now only 300. That's less than 1%. Can you imagine the crowds and of, of the villages that saw the army marching towards the Midianites, then seeing them all wander back home? Why are you coming back? Has the battle started? We've just we've left. We were too coward so we were afraid or we were sent home. What kind of armies left? What kind of tactics are these? You know, if if, if now if each man kills a hundred men, we're only right back to where we were at the start, let alone the fact that we're probably outnumbered. This seems like a very strange way to wage war. And whilst Gideon had been emboldened by the miracle that he'd seen in the fleece, well, he's now had a shock, hasn't he? His army has been dwindled to next to nothing. But that verse 2 is so key in this understanding of what's going on here, isn't it? That lest Israel claim glory for itself. Now we can, sometimes we might think that our boastings are harmless. Oh, I can do this. I've got, I'm very good at this or that. We might think these things are, are, are kind of harmless. But actually what the boasting that, would have, that God is speaking about here is not harmless. It's idolatry. Because what that boasting is is, is, is effectively saying, I have accomplished this myself. I've done it. Nobody helped me. God's got nothing to do with it. It's just me. And you are setting yourselves up above God. And we're straight back to what we've been thinking about so much recently about idolatry. And that's the exact sin that the Israelites were there for in the first place. That's why the Midianites were attacking them, because they were worshiping idols. And it might be a different kind of idol. It's not Baal. It's self-worship, but it's still idolatry. And so it was so incredibly important that the people could see this was not their victory against the Midianites. That's something that they could boast about. This was God's victory. This is the whole point. Well, chapter 3, let's move on. Chapter 3, we see a dream. This is uh, uh, So it's verses 9 through 15. God speaks again. Now that the army has been dwindled to next to nothing, he says, arise, to, to Gideon, he says, arise, go down to the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand a small army? But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened. So Gideon's a bit like a yo-yo at this point. He was down, now he's up, now he's down. And God's telling him that he's, if he wants to be strengthened, he should go down to the camp. There was something that Gideon needed down in the camp. Well, what happens when he goes to the camp? Well, we see firstly what he saw. Firstly, what he saw. And that's verse 12, which we read earlier. He sees the people, vast and numerous, everywhere. Camels uh, without number, and the sand as the sand on the seashore in multitude. That's what he saw. But what did he hear? Because that's more important. What did he hear? Verse 13, and we'll just read these verses down to uh, verse 15. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it, so that it fell and was overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hands God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hands. If he had just looked at what he saw... That wasn't much encouragement. There are thousands of these Midianites here. My 300 men, how are we supposed to possibly defeat them? But then when he listened, he heard this conversation between two men. Have you ever had a dream and you wake up in the morning and you're just really troubled by it? It sort of swims around your brain. After a while, when you wake up properly, you... You can sort of brush it aside. But sometimes you can be quite affected by a dream. And this man had woken up in the middle of the night. It would have been no doubt dark by this point. And he's had a dream. And it's really troubling him. And when he goes to tell his friend, who maybe he hoped his friend would shake him off and say, Don't worry about it, it's just a dream. His friend was already affrighted. His friend said, This is a sign. I can tell you what this is. God God is with this man, Gideon, and he's going to come in here and he's going to wipe us all out. A terror had already seeped in through everybody in the camp, it seems. Sometimes I wonder if, if I could have Gideon or whoever it is next to me. This might be one of the questions. Was that all that you saw in the camp that day? What else did you hear? Did you hear other people talking? I wouldn't be at all surprised if he had. Everywhere he went, he would have heard this fear that was coming out of people. And he was encouraged. Because, you see, when Gideon was afraid, he did did what we should do, and he went to God. He took that fear to God. He prayed about it, and God listened to him. When the Midianites were afraid, they had no one to go to. Plenty, countless examples of those in church history in the Old Testament, New Testament, and even more later of of Christians who feared certain situations in, in, in the life that they were facing. But anybody who's a true believer will eventually take that fear to God and they will find confidence and assurance of their faith. And it's what is so wonderful about our relationship with God that he does not leave us in that state. Well, fourthly, let's have a look at these, chapter four, which are called the torches. Um, If I have to explain to the young ones what a fleece is, maybe I should explain what a torch is too. I'm sure you know, though. It's a piece of stick that would have some kind of rag around it and something that they could use to make it light. So that they would hold it high and they could have gone around with, with shining a light, a fire light around them. Gideon knows that this is the time. This is the moment. The battle has revealed itself to him. He knows exactly what he's going to do. The strategy that he must take. He knows that they are fearful. That they just need to be given a good fright. And he knows that this was the time. They could not wait. They had to do it now. Thankfully, he only had a small army. He only had an army of 300 men. It's much easier to move around a small army than it would be an enormous army. And because it was only 300 men, he could quickly divide them into three companies, give them their instructions, and set them off. If you're an army trying to move around in the dark, well, it's going to be pretty difficult. You don't want to trip over and hurt yourself or uh, lose your way or anything like that. But having this small light army meant that they could do that. They could position themselves quickly. And that's what they did. Three companies, 100 men in each. Each man had a clay jar with a torch inside it, and then a horn that he could blow through to make an awful racket. And at the middle watch, the beginning of the middle watch, it was time to perfection. Now, the way we understand this is there is different in the New Testament and the Roman way of looking at watches and in the Old Testament. So the middle watch would have been from 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock. First watch is 6 to 10, 10 to 2, 2 to 6. So it would have been around 10 o'clock when everybody was changing. When those who were going to do the middle watch and maybe waking up a bit groggy maybe, those that were finishing their watch are probably a bit tired looking forward to a bit of sleep and as everything was in a bit of commotion and there was a bit of back uh, to and toing and froing, it was at that time that Gideon smashes the jars Raises up the torch, blows on the trumpet, and calls out a sword of the Lord, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And the Midianites cried out and fled. They didn't know what was happening. Gideon's army didn't even move. They just stood there continuing to shout and blow the trumpets and hold up their uh, hold up their torches. They just made a noise. And the Midianites had had such a fear in their hearts that they fled into the night, many hours before daybreak, not knowing who was chasing them, hearing footsteps all around them, maybe even hearing swords, and they were scared and they just lashed out and they hurt and killed one another as they ran in their, as they fleed. Again, this is Fear without God. It's not knowing. If you do not know God, then you you have no knowledge, no real knowledge. They had nothing to hope in. They were running away, lashing out at whatever was around them. Victory had been fully in God's hands. He was the one who saved Gideon and his people at that time. Well, just a couple of things to close. We must flee from idolatry. I mean, this has been the point that we've been making over the last few weeks, but isn't it worth saying it again? Turn away from those things that are an offense to God. If we are looking to bring glory to ourselves, then we are against God in that sense. If we, are, if our, we all make mistakes, but if, if what we are doing is purpose and design to take that glory away from God and to hold on to it ourselves, then that's a great sin. So we must flee from these things. And we must know that God's vict- ultimate victory is sure, it is secure, it will not fail. Isn't it so interesting that what he says in verse 2, lest Israel claim the glory for itself against me, it was never a question of would they win. Of course they would. Of course they would. But it's a question of giving the glory to God. If you put your trust in him, you will never be disappointed. We can disappoint ourselves, we can disappoint others. But any true believer that's ever lived would never say that they are disappointed about the fact that they've become a Christian. That is the one thing that they would always cling to. With very few certainties in life, that's the one thing that they can cling to and say, I am not disappointed about this. God will never disappoint if you're a Christian, you can say your amen to this. If you're not a Christian, I hope that you one day will be able to. We all have our fears. Turn those fears to God. And you will find that he is much more merciful than we deserve. and Much greater. Gives us much greater riches than we deserve to. Well, we'll finish off Gideon next time. And continue our studies through the book of Judges. But before we come to sing the last hymn, let's pray. Let's pray. I mean, Father, you know our heart, and you know our those things that are fears in our heart. You know we can be up and down, and if we are to to live by our emotions, then how confused we would be. But we're grateful that we can be strengthened by something much more lasting, much more wonderful than this, that if our hope is found in the gospel, if our hope is found in Jesus Christ, then we will never be disappointed. Here is something that the sheen will never be removed of. Things of this world that so quickly become yesterday's news, things that were joy to us today, well, by a week's time we've forgotten, or maybe a month's time, whenever it might be, but ultimately, their luster is temporary. But to know you is to know something that is really worth knowing, to be part of your kingdom and to know life everlasting. Pray that you would be with us and bless your word to us this evening. We ask this for the forgiveness of our sin. Amen.